0: They involve themselves with people and they see life as uh, one big sporting event. Um, I, uh, I talked to Randy Carlborough quite a bit, and he tells me often that sports are a microcosm of life. And I think they really are. They're a way to test us and show what we're made of and tell us um, different life lessons. I was not uh, the great premier athlete during college, but I was an okay athlete and wanted to stay in shape, and so I involved myself in intramural sports, one of which was indoor soccer, and I had a, a big time doing that. That was kind of fun, once I learned that you're really not supposed to check people like in hockey up against the walls, but after I got through that phase, I was all right. I showed up to a game a little bit late. I think I had class or something was going on, and I showed up, and they immediately threw me into the game. And so I'm running around and not really knowing all of what's going on, but just kicking the ball and doing the best I can. And, you know, throughout the game, the other team scored two goals, and so we're down a couple goals, and we're coming down to the last minute in our game, and the ball is crossed in front of the goal, and so I chip shot it in, and I score a goal. And the team comes around me, and they're saying, man, great job. All right, Jeff. All right, way to go. And I'm like, all right, great. We lose the game. All right, I'm going to go back to my dorm now and do homework and go to bed. And so I went back to my room and did my thing and began to crash in my bottom bunk. And my roommate, who was part of the team and who was there playing with me, ducked his head over the side. And I'm looking at him, he at me, and he's congratulating me on the game and going, Jeff, great goal, great job. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I want to go to bed now. You know, we lost the game. Who cares? And he says, you don't understand. We had scored two goals back-to-back right at the beginning of the game. And so you won the game. I'm going, wow, didn't know that. And, uh, you know, what a way for the Lord to keep you humble in victory, right? You know, you win the game and you don't even know it. Life lessons. Pay attention and know the score, right? Well, the church of Thessalonica needed to know the score, They needed to know the big picture, all of the details of what really was going on with them because they were enduring a severe affliction. And if you don't know the end of the story and if you're not filled in with the big picture, sometimes life can seem very unbearable and we should be filled with joy when we're not because we don't understand all that we need to know that God's word tells us. At the men's retreat, we talked about being a man of God. And I basically said this, masculinity is a mindset. It's a mindset, and it's a biblical mindset, and your mindset, if it's biblical, filled with God's word, will determine the way you act and interact with everybody. It'll determine how joyful you are or how low you allow yourself to get. We need God's word to fill out our thinking so that we can be braced for what life brings us and the difficulties that we have to endure And so what Paul is doing in 2 Thessalonians is he's trying to help a church calm down and endure suffering and hardcore affliction because they were beginning to shake apart. Three months into it, here Paul, Silas, and Timothy had planted this church. They had been with this church for a couple years, establishing it. And then for three months they had left them and gone to Corinth to expand their ministry there. And so three months into their departure, they're finding out that this church is shaken. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Stop there. They were shaken up and they were alarmed. The word shaken is kind of like a word used for an earthquake. They were being shaken apart from the inside in their hearts. John Knox, the great Scottish preacher, put it this way. He said, translating this verse, do not be terrified out of your senses all at once. They were terrified. They were struggling because here they are, this model church in faith, hope, and love, this example, and all of a sudden the enemies are bringing an onslaught that was very difficult for them to handle. Affliction is what they were enduring, verse 4 of chapter 1. Many afflictions, enemies that were attacking them acutely and personally. And they needed the big picture, the whole story of how this thing's going to turn out to calm them down. If you're taking notes, here's a proposition for you. Three ways God controls Antichrist. Three ways God controls the Antichrist to calm them down. This section that we're about to dive into deals specifically with the man of lawlessness, who's also called in 1 John, the Antichrist. And what's so important to grasp from this section of Scripture is that God controls the devil. God controls all events. And supremely, he controls the devil and his ultimate onslaught that will come through The man of lawlessness. This is a tough passage, and it's a passage that a lot of people take and sort of um, splice apart and create a timeline for future events. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, but you don't want to do that and miss the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is that whatever is going to happen in the end is under God's control. And if God is controlling future events, then He's surely controlling the events in this church's life, during this time, and in your life, during our time. He's in supreme control. God is in the driver's seat, not the false teachers. Look look back at verse 1. He's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's talking also about the rapture, where we're gathered together with him, just like Hebrews 10 talks about the church gathering. One day, in an ultimate way, all the believers of all the ages will be gathered together to Christ and raptured away, right? We look forward to that. But instead of embracing those truths, the church was shaking apart and being alarmed because false teachers were coming in, promoting false letters and false teaching, and confusing the church and saying, look, if God is making this promise to you that you're going to be raptured out of affliction and persecution, then what's gone wrong? Because you are really suffering here. Right? It's one thing to have an enemy come after you. It's another thing to have an enemy come in disguise and say, Look, what gives? Is Christianity really worth it? Is Paul really teaching you the right stuff? And so they were beginning to shake apart, and Paul wants to calm them down with the teaching that God is in control. First of all, God controls the Antichrist's timetable. Every event, everything that's going to happen is under God's purview. Look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Stop there. Paul's point is to say this. It is impossible for this to be the day of the Lord. It is impossible for us to be in that time of judgment. Why? Because God is in control of the timetable of the events as they unfold. The rebellion has to come first. It hasn't happened yet. And the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. God's in charge. He's in in charge of every event that's going to take place. Jesus and his coming will come in perfect timing. The rapture will come in God's perfect timetable. So it's impossible for the day of the Lord to have come as yet. Verses 3 and 3 through 5 describe this man of lawlessness and throughout this section we find teaching about him. Who is he? First of all, he's a man. He's not Satan himself. He is Satan's masterpiece or puppet that will come that will be spiritually energized with satanic power to puff himself up as if he were God. He's the man of law. Lawlessness. very significant person that will come. A lot of people believe he's already come, right? They say he's Nero. They say he's Hitler. He was Stalin. He's, he's one of our presidents, right? He's, he's, he's my mother-in-law. I mean, right? I mean, <laughs> wait, does that go on the tape? Anyway, all right, yeah. So <laughs> my mother-in-law have a great relationship, or we did. But anyway, you know, a lot of people want to predict who this person is but the bible just keeps it generic but it is a man and he's lawless first john talks all about how this figure is against the law of god he's anti-truth and he's anti-christ he is he's going to bring the rebellion and the rebellion is an apostasy that's what that original word means in verse three it's an apostasy It could be the apostasy of the Jews rejecting um, God during the seven-year tribulation, rejecting Christ. Or it also could mean that the church has apostatized or gone away from Christ in a significant way and the church becomes this false church that the Antichrist becomes enthroned in and becomes in the seat of power says he's revealed, he's he's revealed like revelation, he shows up. Just like the Son of God showed up in the first advent and will return again, this man of lawlessness is a false Christ who is revealed. So there'll be some supernatural revealing of this man. He's called the Son of Destruction. That's a Hebrew idiom for Son of Perdition. You've heard it before, attributed to who? Judas Iscariot. A person who Jesus said it would have been better for him not to have been born because he was born to go to hell. And that's this man as well. Someone whose heart is filled with Satan, just like Judas was. The son of destruction. Daniel 9 and Daniel 11 talk about the events that are going to happen in the end times, the seven-year tribulation. You have sort of this display, if you read it, of 70 weeks, 69 weeks that lead up to the 70th week, which is um, has been taught to be the seven-year tribulation, which is also described in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 18 with sealed judgments and bold judgments. This is the wrath of God on display in This world and midway through the seven-year tribulation is called the abomination desolation, and that's described here also in uh, verse four. It says, "Who the son of uh, the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God." A lot of people believe that three and a half years through the seven-year tribulation. You've got this great apostasy, you've got this great following of the Jews that are surrounding him, and he recreates himself as the son of God in a recreated holy of holies and inner sanctum, in a temple of God where he's saying, worship me. And people do, and people will, and it's an abomination to God. Satan's masterpiece. Now before we go any further, let me just say this. Like I've said, the key to understanding 2 Thessalonians is understanding Paul's main point is not to chart out future events, but it's to calm a church down. You study end times theology primarily for your own personal holiness, your own personal gut check. Why do you study the wrath of God, sealed judgments, bold judgments? It's not to become smarter, it's to become more fearful of God and, and to say, what manner uh, am i in if the lord returns today or right now what's he going to find and then it's also to study the end times to fill our hearts with hope that's why we do it holiness and hope we want to be reunited with our loved ones And we've lost them, this side of heaven, and we want that promise to cling to, that we're going to see people again, and we're going to see Jesus. And the pain I'm undergoing, the the suffering, the burden that you're carrying right now, the subtext that's going through your mind, that's going to be resolved one day in heaven. That's why you study it. That's important. It's also important to understand that we don't have all the dialogue here. And this is a very interesting component of 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse 5. Paul says... Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? There's a little bit of sanctified frustration here, and I kind of like it. You know, Paul's just saying, look, don't you remember when I was with you? When we talked about this stuff, and it's been three months, and you're struggling, and you're shaken apart. What am I going to do with you? You know, that's what's here in verse 5. There was a dialogue about the end times that Paul had with them. And they're not getting it anymore. They're getting confused. It's kind of a testimony of how easy it is to sort of let go of basic truths when we need them to anchor us, right? It's kind of like overhearing a conversation or part of a conversation to read this section. We're not going to have all the details here. It's like being at Starbucks when somebody doesn't care and they're on their cell phone and they're over loud and you're trying not to over hear them. You're not trying to spy on them, but you're suddenly interested in what they're talking about. Not that I'd ever do that. And you're distracted and you're trying to piece together the whole story. That's what we're doing here with this text. He says, I told you these things. I told you this. So we don't have all the details. The point is God's in control and he's trying to calm them down with this truth. Another sort of preliminary thought is that our doctrinal statement At Anchorage Grace Church is a pre-tribulational position. In other words, we believe that suddenly Jesus is going to return without any warning, and we are going to be raptured and gathered together with Him. And I embrace that position for several reasons. I believe that there will be a literal seven-year tribulation based on. Daniel 9 and Daniel 11, and based on how I read the book of Revelation in a futurist sense, I believe that those events are still going to happen once you get into chapter 6 and following in the book of Revelation. I do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 says, the Lord will come like a thief in the night, suddenly, out of nowhere... First um, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talks about how we're delivered from wrath, which could allude to the tribulation. First Thess 5, nine talks about how we're not destined for wrath. Matthew 24 is where Jesus at the Olivet Discourse is addressing the Jews, and he's talking about two men who are in a field and one's taken suddenly. Two women are grinding at, at the mill and one is taken and one is left. You kind of upload the, the tune from the uh, old... Um, you know, films that were real to real. You remember those? We should have all been ready, right? You kind of have the tune in your mind. Should have been, should have all been ready. You know, two are in the field and you're kind of scared to death as a kid watching those films. Is, is anything coming back, right? Well, you know, I think that position is biblical. But at the same time, I have to be honest to say that as you go into this conversation that Paul's having with this church ...in 2 Thessalonians, though Paul is talking about the return of Christ... ...and he's talking about the rapture in verses 1 and 2... ...he's also talking in terms of these events... ...that perhaps the church is supposed to identify and see... ...while they have still their feet on the ground here. So the man of lawlessness, he'll be revealed... ...and, and you'll see these things... And, ...and he will perform an abomination... And it's possible that we actually will encounter these events and see them. And that would mean that you're actually here during part of the tribulation. There's, there are kind of three positions regarding the tribulation. There's the pre-tribulational position, the mid-tribulational position, and the post-tribulational position. You're either you know, rescued at the beginning, the middle, or the end in the rapture. And I kind of prefer to approach a different position here. I, I like to call it the pan-tribulational position. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> I mean, you've got to have that sort of release valve with some of this discussion. If you turn over to Matthew 24, for instance, Matthew 24, I didn't use that during the candidating process, I assure you, but Matthew 24... is the Olivet Discourse. And this is where Jesus is addressing the Jews. And he's talking through, beginning at verse 6, how they're going to see things, wars, rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed at this. Does this sound familiar? This is Jesus teaching very similarly to how Paul taught the Thessalonians. He said these things have to take place, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. Verse 7 and following, there'll be birth pangs. There's tribulation that you're delivered unto. People will be put to death. False prophets, verse 11, will arise and many will be led astray because of lawlessness. Sounds a little familiar, like the son of lawlessness or the man of lawlessness. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And then he goes on in verse 15 to talk about the abomination desolation, that event midway through the seven-year tribulation. Where the son of or the man of lawlessness is raising himself up to be as if he is the son of God or very God. And then go to verse 36 and he says concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son of man, but the father only. In other words, when is Jesus going to return? Even the son of God, Jesus, as he's teaching this, is saying, I don't even know exactly when I'm supposed to return. So it's kind of interesting, right? If Jesus isn't supposed to know the exact details of his return, are we? But then it goes on to compare his return to Noah and the flood and how the flood rushed in with suddenness and swept people away. And then verse 39, They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's where you have two in the field and two in the mill and one's gone and one stays. That's the way Jesus taught this to the Jews. And you can say, well, that's because the Jews are here during the tribulation. And I understand that position. I also understand that it says explicitly in the book of Revelation that 144,000 Jews will be rescued during the tribulation. And I get that. But the way that Paul approaches the church here is just so very similar to the way Jesus taught it in Matthew 24. And I just got to lay that out and say that It is kind of interesting to try to understand what is going on here and relate that to what we should expect. And you know what I think we should expect? We should expect that Jesus is going to return one way or the other and rescue us. When John said the words at the end of Revelation, after he had described the whole tribulation period and described everything that's going to happen, he said, even so come Lord Jesus. And so perhaps we're not going to see any of this on earth, but we'll know what's going on while we are already rescued safe in heaven. And perhaps some of these events are going to take place and we're going to be rescued nevertheless. But my hope is in Christ, not my eschatological chart. Amen? Our hope is in the word of God and the promise that he's going to return and save us. And the way that this plays out is the way God wants it to play out. The Antichrist who is this man of lawlessness? You know, there are many sort of foreshadows of foreshadowings of the Antichrist, and one was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, and Daniel 11.36 talks about this one that was going to come, and he was going to be the king of the north. And this Man actually showed up, and I'm sure people thought he was the Antichrist because he created an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies during the Maccabean period, and that was an abomination, desolation. You go, well, that's got to be him. What about Hitler, Adolf Hitler, slaying six million Jews, maybe more? It's got to be the Antichrist. Well, these are foretaste of this man of lawlessness. So it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Antiochus... Epiphanies. It's the idea of of him wanting everybody to have an epiphany. So he named himself that. He wanted everybody to wake up and see that he truly was God. When he's not, also the king of Tyre. You've heard of this reference in Isaiah 14, where it talks about the king of Tyre, and it's as if Satan himself is talking, right? Isaiah 14, 12 and 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Have you ever heard that in relation to Christ? I mean, in relation to Satan, this is actually talking about the king of Tyre, but it's also alluding to what was probably going on in Satan's heart when he tried to overthrow God in heaven and say that he is God. It says... You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Are you ever tempted to think, man, how could somebody who's sort of positioned in heaven as this angel servant of God ever do that? and I'm not here this morning to explain or try to explain the problem of evil and why God allowed it to happen in the first place, but I do have to say this. Let's not be so quick to judge even Satan himself because isn't this same seed of pride in each one of us? It is. It is. We we want to raise ourselves up like this man of lawlessness. And before we're saved, we're at enmity with God. And if we don't become saved, if God doesn't transform this out of you, then you will suffer the same fate that Satan does and will one day. And the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, hell will be guaranteed for you. You will undergo the wrath of God eternally unless this pride is dealt with in your life. You know, that's one of the qualifications to be an elder in First Timothy 3, that you not be a new convert, a recent convert or neophyte, lest you become puffed up with pride and suffer the same condemnation of the devil. I mean, sin is sin, and the seed of sin that rose in Satan's heart is the same seed that's in all of our hearts. If we're saved, it's just dethroned, but it's still residually there, and we have to press it down. I was thinking of uh, an analogy that uh, one of our associates gave to me recently. Sanctification is like um, going up on a down escalator, and you have to keep marching up to the top by the power of the Spirit. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're going down. And we dare not let our guard down regarding this sin, this pride, this lawlessness, this raising ourselves up as if we are God. Well, he opposes God in verse 5. In his very temple. Number one, God controls the Antichrist in terms of his timetable. And number two, our second point here is God controls Antichrist influence. How much influence is the Antichrist supposed to have? Look at verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. This is part of that conversation that we don't have full clarity on. Who is the restrainer? You know who knows? Well, the Thessalonians know, because Paul's saying, you know who's restraining him now, remember? A lot of people say that the restrainer is, uh, was the Roman government at this time, or the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. Perhaps Satan himself is restraining the Antichrist. That's a position some people take. But I prefer to see this in this context as the Holy Spirit being the restrainer. That's who I think it is. The one who is against sin in our world. And the God of this world is alive and well and he's ruling through the societies and philosophies and systems and through witchcraft and through all kinds of Wiccan activity. And he is manifesting himself here and there as the God ruler, the lowercase g-o-d ruler of this world. But he's restrained to some degree, right? He's restrained by God himself and by the Holy Spirit. The mystery of lawlessness in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians is talking about something that's not full bore yet. Whenever you see the word mystery, it's not that it's confusing. It's just that it's not fully uncovered yet. It's not fully manifested yet. And so we're in sort of a pre-lawless phase that's going to get a lot worse. And I think that can be some of you know, some sanctified reverse psychology where we say, you know, it does have to get worse before it's going to get better. And so if things are getting worse in our society and our politics and liberal agenda and things that we see that gross us out, we can say, Lord, rescue us from this. Lord, judge this. Lord, bring us home away from this while we at the same time try to do our part to make a difference. But we're in a state of a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. Verse 7. This picks up with several verses in 1 John. You might turn to them as I read them off. 1 John 2.18 talks about how it's the last hour. In other words, we're part of this lawless phase that's coming to culmination. And he says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. 1 John 2.22 who is the liar, but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. You say, look, what, you know, am I supposed to greet the Jehovah's Witness as they come to the door, or am I supposed to be a, a gospel godly witness? Well, Second John actually says, don't give them a greeting and send them on their way. You know why? Because Antichrist has come to your porch. When the Mormons show up to your door, I'm not saying be mean to them personally, but you need to resist their influence. I've said this before, but I remember somebody from a former church ministry that I was a part of who was one of the premier, most godliest persons in our church, or known to be that. And she began to involve herself relationally with a piano teacher of her child. And she was so idolizing the talent of her child that she just kind of forgave the influences of this Mormon pianist and maestro. And this guy began to, you know, have food at the table when she would come for the piano lessons. They built a friendship and a relationship uh, on a heart level. And ultimately, he insinuated into her heart the Mormon faith. And later on in Facebook, there she is. uh, She's left her family, left her husband, following the Mormon faith, baptized into that false religion. You know what that is? That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the mystery of lawlessness that's around us. It is. We need to be careful we need to understand that that's why we are to be guardians of the truth. That's why doctrine matters. That's why truth matters. So that we can resist the spirit of Antichrist. And we can even know through a biblical grid what the Antichrist is or what the spirit of Antichrist is. 2 John 1, seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They're doing something Wrong with Jesus Christ, when when false teachers monkey with the deity of Christ, or Christ being the eternal God, you know it's wrong, you know it's antichrist. And he says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What's a spirit? A teaching. Every teaching that doesn't say Jesus is God... It's not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. All right. So moving to point three. God controls the Antichrist timetable. He controls the influence of the Antichrist. And now, finally, he controls the Antichrist future. You know what the point is here? Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed... Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Stop there. The Antichrist does not get to win. Amen. The man of lawlessness is going to be cut down by Jesus. Our Lord wins. In the end, Jesus is the winner. That's the one that we serve, and we're on the right team. We are. We're on Jesus' team. And he's going to decapitate or kill the man of lawlessness to the glory of God. It's got to happen. He is anti Christ, he's against Christ, and Christ is going to return to kill him with his word. Look at this, the breath of his mouth. He's going to speak, you're dead, and the man of lawlessness will die. It's a promise. He's going to speak it into existence. You're going to die. In Revelation chapter 19, it says that he's going to slay his enemies with a two edged sword. It's the same concept killing with speech, with his word. Look at the origin of the man of lawlessness. You find this in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. That word activity is energy. He's going to be energized by Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. It's as if Paul had to say in verse 8, he's going to be killed. This guy is going to show up and you just need to know for your comfort and for your security that there's a promise here that this man of lawlessness is going to be horrible, but Jesus is going to cut him down with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus is going to show up And the son of lawlessness or the man of lawlessness is going to die. And then after he says that, Paul's comfortable now with describing him a little bit more. He's just going to lay that down right away. He's going to die, but he will be energized by Satan with the power of false signs and wonders. You know... It's interesting that he puts in signs and wonders because there are so many manifestations that are supernatural this side of heaven and some of them are satanic and we need to know that. Just like when Moses was empowered to be the spokesperson for God to Pharaoh and God said, look, bring a staff and throw it down. It'll turn into a serpent. Um, You know you will be able to put your staff into the water and the water will turn into blood. You'll be able to sort of predict and prophesy plagues that will come. At the same time, there were countermeasures from Satan where false teachers and false prophets and magicians, they were able to do trickery that looked like the miracle of God. These are, you know, angel of light moments. These are God-like miracles and satanically energized manifestations that look like God's power, and they are powerful manifestations, but they're not from God. Yeah, they made serpents, but God's serpent gobbled up their serpents. You have that going on in the book of Acts, you have manifestations of Satan where people are super empowered, people are strengthened. You remember Jesus in the Gospels when he met the man that was possessed at the Gadarenes and he was, he was chained, but he had ripped the chains off the walls and he was, he was cutting himself and, and just this crazy man, but he was empowered by the legions of Satan. So we, we need to be very evaluative, even when someone says, look, it's a miracle, So it must be of God. Well, not necessarily. Signs and wonders are not necessarily of God. And we need to be evaluative. We need to be careful. And that's why we have this warning. Because you know what? The supernatural, if you just believe in supernatural things as being from God and you do that to the expense of the truth, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be duped and deceived. Look at verse 10. It says, and picking right up on the signs and wonders movement, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the what? Truth, and so be saved. Satan's deception comes in this form, and it's the idea of having a fog over your eyes where you are deceived And you're in a state of perishing. It's the idea that you're headed on the wide road that leads to destruction. You're going downstream to go off the cliff and you don't even know it. A state of perishing. Judas Iscariot, think of him. He was one of the apostles that was sent to do signs and wonders, healings, casting demons out. He was one of those. Now people were doing it by the power of the spirit. The disciples, the rest of them were but so was the son of perdition. But he was not energized by the Holy Spirit, was he? Who was he energized by? Satan, who had filled his heart, empowering him to do miraculous things, to dupe people, to draw people away. Matthew chapter 7, it says that in the end, people will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, right? You remember that? Didn't we cast out demons? I've got to be in... They're duped. Depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. This goes on to explain their state of deception. They're deceived, they're perishing because they refuse to love the truth in verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. God, basically, in the flow of their disobedience, in the flow of them being satanically deceived and their rebellion... Confirms their rebellion and their deception and condemns them. That's where this leads. Look at verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in what? Unrighteousness. God never condemns anyone unless they are first rebelling against him. That's how it always works. They're deceived by Satan and then their their hearts are filled in the inside with rebellion and lawlessness and they want their own way and they want to follow after the world. And ultimately, God sees this unrighteousness and in his holy justice and perfection condemns certain ones in reprobation. That's what this text is saying. It's a sober but true situation that we live in. We live in the day of pre-Antichrist and yet there is Antichrist work that's all around and we need to be aware of it. Now let's try to bring this closer to home few points of application. Number one, our newspaper should not inform our theology. A lot of people want to have their newspaper in one hand, their Bible in the other, and you kind of lay it over top and say, okay, now I can really read. (laughs) Well, we need to be careful. Now, if you like to watch CNN, if you like to watch Fox News, that's great. I mean, some of that's very informative, and some of it's just you know, kind of vain repetition where you're going around the world in 20 minutes over and over and over again, and the same sound bites happening, right? But it's entertaining, and it's enjoyable dialogue sometimes, and I understand that stimulation. It's important for us to be informed and to know how to vote and know what to do in our life and in our world and stem the tide against liberal agendas, right? We need to be lights in the world, but we need to do so with the standard of the truth. The truth needs to lead the way and be our light and our grid through which we understand what's going on around us. And we need to cling to these promises, not any sort of man-made promise that would come through world events or circumstances or even politics. Matthew twenty-four thirty-six. instead of having everything precisely figured out in the end times, even the Son of Man did not know the hour that he was going to come back. You know, and from this text under this point, um, letter B, based on future events, it's unbelievers that should be shaken up, not believers. You know, a lot of people get uh, really kind of wired and excited and discouraged based on who gets elected. And I think it's good to be energetically assertive and mindful of politics, but if you're riding a roller coaster, of ups and downs, and you don't have sort of a spiritual baseline equilibrium that's based on truth, then you need to examine yourself, because things are promised to get worse and worse. We live in a spirit of antichrist, right? There are going to be false teachers and false leaders around us that are going to have false religion that they're promoting, but we've got the truth, and we've got the promise that, you know what, Jesus is going to win in the end. So it's got to get worse before it gets better. Why do we study eschatology? The word eschatology, don't freak out that I use that word. It's just the word eschaton, which means future, and it's the study of the future. Why do we study the future from the Bible? It's for holiness and for hope. And I talked about that already. We study it for holiness and hope. You should read 1 and 2 Thessalonians for your heart, first and foremost. And then if you want to study the end times in specificity, read books on that. We have a class actually given from Alaska Bible College this semester on the end times on Daniel and Revelation. It be a great study for you to go through. But even in those studies, even reading that level of theology and reading the Bible and, and really digging in on that level, it has to lead you towards holiness and hope or you're missing the point of why it's in there in the first place. I mean, why do you think so much of eschatology is spread and interspersed all throughout of it, throughout it, Genesis to Revelation, and people have to pick and choose and put it together to make sense of it all? It's because the main point of each passage where that's threaded in and through it is for your own holiness and hope, not for you to have everything perfectly laid out for us to be able to figure out what's going to happen. Otherwise, if we're concerned about our eschat. eschat- Catalogical chart, then we're clinging to that instead of clinging to Christ, right? We dare not do that. Don't trade your sort of your, your sort of theological ambition for faith in Christ. You want faith in Christ. We want, even so come, Lord Jesus. I don't have it all figured out. I can have what's figured out and displayed for me in Scripture. I can read that and cling to that. But ultimately, when all is said and done, I just want Jesus. Right? The pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-tribbers, we're all going to go in the same rapture. So let's just all get on the bus when he shows up and be with the Lord. Number three, our enemy should always be viewed in light of God's sovereignty. And that goes for all of spiritual warfare. God is in control of our enemy. Luther, Martin Luther put it this way, Satan's alive and real, but he's on God's leash. And you know what, if I can add and embellish that, you know, Jesus at any one point can pull his choke chain. And ultimately, he's going to destroy him and cast him into hell. He's already defeated him at the cross. The serpent's head was what? Crushed. So he's already condemned. He's loose on a leash. He's condemned. And he will ultimately be destroyed in a state of ruination, not annihilation, ruined forever in hell. Satan is always acting according to God's timetable. He isn't Countercultural. He's flowing right in and through the culture that's around us. His agenda is alive and well. He's the God of this world. And Satan, all the while, is not winning. Do you ever think that he's not winning? We think he's winning. He's not. He's just on God's timetable. He's under God's sovereignty. And Satan is destined not to win. Number four, spiritual deception always has three angles. And this sort of fills out the final verses that I went through about how people are condemned, there's the external influence of Satan. People are duped by Satan's lies. Then there's the internal willful disobedience from man. We, we sort of are supposed to resist the devil in James chapter 4, but James 1 talks about how sin is born and grows from the inside. That's not Satan's fault. That's our own sins, sinfulness, and we are culpable for our sins. And then finally, and this is the warning, the final condemnation is from God. So three angles. You have satanic influence from the outside, you have the internal influence of our own sin, and then you have the final condemnation of God on people who will not repent. So you know what? If you missed the sermon last week on the wrath of God, go listen to that in concert with this one. And be warned, if you're not yet repentant, if you haven't repented, If you don't yet know Christ, turn to Christ today. Because you don't want to be duped by Satan any longer. You don't want to follow your rebellious path any longer. Don't live in secret sin. Repent. If you are a Christian already, repent of your secret sins and be a follower of Christ. Because judgment is coming for those who are wicked, who have never repented. And you might even be self-deceived and think that you're a Christian and you're really not. And you need to repent for the first time. We'd be happy to pray with you about that. We love you here. We, we want you to know this, Lord. And to be excited about the king and the judge who's going to return. Because you know what? We're on his team. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. I pray, God, that you would be magnified in our hearts. And we would worship you as you are due to be worshipped. Lord, you are the ruler of All things, and even though Satan is still alive and well, and even though these end times events are going to take place, we know that you are in control of all of them, and we need to not fear them or try to overly figure them out. But Lord, we need to be warned if we have not yet repented and bowed the knee to Christ. I pray, God, that we would be rejuvenated, that we would be refreshed to know that even if we are going through affliction and uncertainty in our life, even for those who are struggling in their marriages, struggling in their parenting, struggling in their jobs, struggling in their relationships, struggling with extended family, struggling with anything, struggling with their finances, that they would submit all of those things to your lordship because you are, God, you are this big, you are ruler over all things. and. We want you to rule our hearts and our circumstances and know that if you can control the man of lawlessness, then you can control the events in our daily life as well. We thank you, God, for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand now for our final time. I just want to encourage you. Sign up for things. Involve yourself in things at Anchorage Grace. We had a great time this weekend as men. It was great for people to sort of work through. Okay, I, I wanted to go. I signed up and. And then I went, you know, and and they had a lot of fun. Same thing with Thanksgiving blessing and Bible studies and home groups. We've got a home group meeting tonight at the Paul's and the Balani's on Monday. And the Jero's put on a young marrieds group. You know, involve yourself in these Bible studies and things. Also, uh, something else that's coming up for um, service is uh, Thanksgiving service on November the 21st. It's an evening service of worship where we offer Thanksgiving to God, but it's a potluck dinner. And so... Uh, see Tammy Wells regarding that. She has a table to sign up um, there in the back. Also, Clara Story and Rosemary um, Masters are part of that. And so we've got some method to our madness. But jump in. You say, I'm not connected. I want to be more connected. We'll serve and jump in and get to know people through service. You know, one last thing. There's an article that's just been written and it was by a lady who was representing the churches of Anchorage. And that's a conglomeration of churches that are banding together to try to make a difference in Anchorage. She's an employee of of their, of their, of them, and she told me she was coming. So she came last week and heard my sermon on the wrath of God. Welcome to Anchorage Grace Church. We're going to talk about wrath. Anyway, um, but she wrote a glowing report about all that goes on and about who we are and how warm the fellowship is here and how we have cookies and... We have punch and we have treats in the back and how I said that this place should turn into one great big living room where we enjoy each other relationally. And she put all of that through her article that's going to be on a blog and we need to print it off and distribute it around to us for your encouragement. But be encouraged by that. This is part of who we are is, is the time now to get to know each other and involve each other, involve ourselves in each other's lives. Well, let me pray one more time. God, I pray that you would bless these men and women and these boys and girls. Let us be impacted by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Dismissed.